You're listening to a resource from Jamboree Anglican Church. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you speak to us for the confidence we can have in your word. And we ask that we would see the world your way, especially as we see things in this passage that that might surprise or shock us. Help us to know your word is good and give us the mind of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what makes a good leader? I think this is the kind of question people keep trying to answer. Uh, If you're about to become a school prefect, they'll probably say that. What do you think makes a good leader? If you've just become a manager, you think, ooh, what does it mean to be a good leader? Or maybe if you're voting to select a leader, you're thinking, well, who's a good one and what makes a good one? In March, our Archbishop retires, and then in May, there'll be 600 of us, and we will gather together to vote for the new guy. The good news is, from what I can tell of all the candidates who are likely to be there, they're great guys, and we will be very blessed, whoever is chosen. But I've got to choose just one guy, so who do I choose? What makes a good leader? What do you think makes a good leader? What is one thing in particular that you think is really important in a leader? Get out your pen. Or just stick it in your head. I'm not going to collect it or anything like this. But you might just want to write down underneath that in your notes what makes a good leader. Just just one word or one thing. Or just think of it in your head and remember it because I'll refer to it at the end and see if it matches up with what we've seen. What do you think makes a good leader? Hmm. Well, about two years ago, I had the great privilege of of coming here officially full-time as the uh, rector of this parish and there was a commencement service and in that commencement service the same promises I made when I was first ordained as a minister of God's church were repeated. There's a whole list of these terrific things that, uh, that define the role of a presbyter in God's church. But I reckon the leadership profile in an Anglican ordination service is likely to be different to the leadership profile of, say, a top CEO Uh, or maybe the captain of a sporting team, or even a volunteer fire brigade. There's not one universal leadership profile, because there's not one universal criteria of what makes a good leader. And that's because not everybody thinks the same things when it comes to working out what makes a good leader, and that's why it's good to turn to God's word. And we're going to do that now as we look at 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to be seeing some... uh, powerful and at times controversial messages about what makes a good leader and in particular what makes a good king, a good king of God's people in God's kingdom. The answer will come in part as we see the final words that King David says to his son, the new king, Solomon. And we'll also get the idea of what to do when we see how Solomon executes justice. Some of what we will see will be normal and expected. Yep, 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 yep. And other bits we'll see to be difficult and even disturbing. It's like, oh, oh, really? Didn't see that coming. But the reason that we might find them difficult, I think, is because we often don't see the world God's way. We need to see the world God's way. And that's the challenge for us this morning as we sit under the word of God. We want to see the world God's way, not our way, not the natural way. So with that in mind, the verse that starts us off from chapter 2 is this. 
As the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to his son, Solomon. You know about those famous last words that people say it sort of summarises or encapsulates their very life in a, in a clear way? Well, we're going to get that here now with King David. And he's going to speak to his son, his son Solomon. And he starts with verse 2 saying, I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. It's a sobering fact. Even the great King David is going to die. And the day of his death is coming very, very soon. And so he speaks to his son, Solomon. And the first thing that he says is this. He says, take courage and be a man. Solomon's about to die. Sorry, David's about to die and Solomon's about to see the death of his dad. And it's going to be hard for him. It's going to give him some personal grief as he has to say goodbye to his father. But there's also going to be some corporate grief The whole nation of Israel is going to be rattled a bit because David did that job for 40 years. That's a long time to be the leader of a kingdom. And so in all of this, Solomon needs to take courage. He needs to be strong. He needs to be courageous. Personally, of course, as he deals with the passing of his dad, but also in his role as the leader of God's people, he needs to take courage. Leadership is hard. It's not for the faint-hearted. It requires decisions that impact others. Some are for the good, some are for the bad. You know, some of them we will be renowned for great leadership and everyone will applaud and others will say, oh, that's a stupid decision. As they say in Canberra, if you want a friend, get a dog. Um, the leadership can be hard. But what does courage look like? David tells Solomon to be a man. It's what soldiers were told as they were just about to have the horn blow and they were about to run forward into battle. I wonder when you last heard someone in public say to someone, be a man. It's not terribly politically correct, really, is it, to say, be a man. Uh, A few years ago, I was running a men's dinner at another church and the speaker gave the topic to me, which I put in the advertising material, and it was man up for a men's dinner. Uh, I received a reply from one of the many people that got this email distributed to them and they came back and they said to me, don't you realise that this phrase is inappropriate and derogatory towards women? Interesting, isn't it? Uh, Our world has changed a fair bit. Uh, it is interesting to see what happens, and that was several years ago. I think just as an absolute tangent and perhaps a holiday, a, ho- a, holiday, a ho- hobby horse, um, it's sad, I think, that our society is trying to dismantle every distinction between men and women because we're soon going to lose the beauty of femininity, I think, because women will have to compete with men and so we'll need to be men in everything. Isn't it? Interesting. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with this. But as they say, what a time to be alive. Uh, the, the point of the matter here is that Solomon needs to be like a soldier. He needs to man up. He needs to stand up there, walk up and be ready to do tough, tough things. And what does he need to do? Well, he needs to follow God's ways. God's king must follow God's ways. Uh, we see this in verse 3. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commandments, regulations and laws written in the law of Moses. That's what David said to Solomon. He said, Solomon, you can't make all this stuff up. 
You need to follow the rules of the Lord. You've got to keep what God has said we should do as we live. You've got to keep what's kept in the, the law of Moses, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. That's what needs to drive you. Now, it's easy for us to see this list here of the, the requirements and the decrees and the laws and the regulations and things as a, a little bit like the, the latest public health order. I get these. I get all excited. I think, can we sing? No. Okay. Do we have to wear masks? Don't have to. How close can we sit next to each other? And it's like this list of rules. And when you go for a driving test, you're told about all the different rules. Make sure you indicate when you leave a roundabout. When was the last time you did that? Okay, and all these sorts of things. You've got these rules, and you're thinking, poor old King Solomon's got this big bunch of rules. He's just got to keep all these rules and these rules and these rules. But the law of the Lord is beautiful. The law of the Lord is beautiful. Here's how David himself, when he wrote Psalm 19, described them. He said, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And then verse 10, They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. It's like eating lollies. You know, This is what the law of the Lord is like. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing because God speaks in his promises and he speaks his law oh your law Lord it's beautiful and David as he's about to die says son I want you to love them as much as I do I want you to love the law of the Lord and I want the law of the Lord to be the very blood that pumps through your veins because as you do so son there's a promise that's attached to them Verse 3b, keep the decrees, commands, regulations and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. If you keep the law, you'll be completely successful. That's quite an incentive. You know, some senior executives for their incentives get gold watches. Well, no, no longer in Australia Post, I guess. Uh, but imagine if you're incentive was you will be successful in all that you do interesting kind of incentive isn't it I mean, this is almost one of these things you could write out and stick it on the door of your of your car or you know on, you know, on the dashboard or you could stick it on the, the door of your fridge or whatever and say keep all god's laws and you will be totally successful in everything you think oh that's really cool i can do all that surely but what does success actually mean what does prosperity actually mean? Uh, we often think of it as being really, really healthy and really, really wealthy and really, really happy and all those things. And so you think, all right, here's a memory verse for me. The more good law stuff I keep, the more happiness and wealth and uh, that, that's a great thing, isn't it? Is that what God's saying to me right here, right now, as I read the Bible? It's the Bible. It's my Bible. It's a Christian Bible. Why can't I take that promise and hold on to it? Well, it's worth noting that it's written by one king of Israel to another king. So if you're just about to have the kingdom of God passed on to you by your father, David, then, yeah, knock yourself out. This is a verse for you. But it kind of was written to Solomon quite a while ago. And what's more, not only was it just written to Solomon, it was actually about the whole kingship thing and not just about general life. You know, like if someone's sort of talking about success in an industry, they might say, if you do all of your things in this particular way, then in that you will get success. 
And so if you work really, really hard at university, then you will be getting successful marks and so on, things like that. It doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to have your, your, your bad knee fixed up or you're going to sleep better at night. It doesn't mean you're going to have lots of money, although it depends what you study. I mean, all this. But you see, when you're a king telling another king that you're going to get success, it's related to the, the king thing. And that's what we've got here. And in particular, success for Solomon is seen in succession. Peter Success for Solomon is seen in succession. In other words, when one king comes after another, after another, after another, then that's a good day at the office. That's what success looks like. It's succession. Have a look at verse 4. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. What is success like for Solomon? It's being able to hand over his crown to the next guy and the guy after that and the guy after that. And that's terrific, isn't it? It was promised to David and the promise remains for Solomon. It's great, except there's two minor problems. Uh, The first is that every king was a dud. They didn't actually do that. They didn't keep to the letter of the law. They didn't even keep to any of the law most of the time, some of them, except for Jesus. He, He does that perfectly. We'll come to him in a little while. But if that's the case, then how is it that God would actually continue to show them kindness? Why would he give them another king? Why wouldn't he just say, oh, forget you guys, blow the place up? Well, it's because God was faithful to them. Have a look at the promise that was originally given to David and to Samuel. He said, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would. But my favour will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me all time, and your throne will be secure forever. On the one hand, it seems that the king must obey God in order for his people to receive salvation. You do this, and you'll be successful. But on the other hand, it seems that, that people will be saved even if they are disobeying God. Now, which one's right? Well, it's another one of those things where sort of both are true. Because God demands obedience, but he still remains faithful. For the Christian today, it's not like you've got a choice. You can't say, do I choose to be faithful to God or not? Do I choose to obey his laws? Do I choose to to follow his commandments? Oh, I reckon I'm going to be one of those Christians who never does any of that. Well, no, you can't do that. God says, obey me. I love obeying me. Follow me, make me your Lord, keep me your Lord, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we know that we fail to do that and he doesn't give up on us. I have sinned against God, I do it all the time. I've done it in big ways, I've done it in little ways, I do it in all sorts of ways. And I tell you what, if it was all down to me keeping God's law, I would have been wiped down by God and have no grace from him. But that's the word. That's the thing. It's all about grace. You might think, I look back on my life and I think of all the things I've done. How could God possibly love me? I think of the things I've said, the people I've hurt. How could God possibly love me? 
You may not yet be a friend of Jesus and you think, I've just got too much baggage. I can't do enough to be able to be cleansed of that so I can just even start to talk to God. He wouldn't even let me into his building to talk to him. That's not the way it works with God. You come as you are and he will make you clean. And it's from the top down. And we see it here that even with the kings, when they mess up, when they do and they did, he continues to be faithful to them. And friends, God demands obedience, but he still remains faithful. And this is a wonderful, wonderful promise. And you would think at this point, this high point, that we'd walk away and say, wow, what a wonderful way to end all of his famous last words. So, So that David might say, your throne will be secure forever. And then David died and was buried with his ancestors. I reckon that's, that's sort of how I'd do it. If I was David, I'd say, David, in on a high point, just go over there and breathe your last breath and we'll be right. But that's not how it ends. They are not David's final words recorded in 1 Kings. These are. Oh, and there's something else, Solomon. You know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jetha? He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in a time of peace, staining his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think best, but don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. Kind to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, make them permanent guests at your table, for they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember Shimei, son of Gera, the man from Bahurim in Benjamin? He cursed me with a terrible curse as I was fleeing to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, I swore by the Lord that I would not kill him, but that oath does not make him innocent. You are a wise man and you will know how to arrange a bloody death for him. Then David died. King David's last words. You will know how to arrange a bloody death for him. Does that surprise you at all? It surprised me a little bit as I'm reading it. And I thought... Surprised me a little bit as I thought, I'm going to be preaching on it. <laughs> uh, it's not the kind of thing you'd expect to see of one of God's kings. I mean, you'd expect to see it from the Godfather, you know. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. You can understand that. But this from the king of God's people, the kingdom of King David to King Solomon, you know, Kill him and make it look like an accident. Whatever it is, how he does it. You know how the famous last words? It's a fresh reminder, friends, that God's king will carry out God's justice. That's what God's kings do. When people attack God's king, there will be a price to pay. He won't let people reject his king and get away with it. And David tells his son Solomon, when you are the king of God's people, as you are now... You've got to be a king that carries out justice. That's your job. And as you execute justice, you will execute the rebels. So you need to execute Joab. And you need to execute Shimei. David didn't quite finish the job. Not sure why. Well, 
anyway, but he says, Solomon, can you sort it out, mate? And so he does carry out justice. He also carries out some mercy, as we saw about Barzillai, of uh, the sons of Barzillai of Gilead. But what we have here is a reminder that God will not leave sin unpunished. God is not a God who says, yeah, no, don't worry about it, mate. That is not God. People have all sorts of pictures of what they think God's like. They think, she'll be right, mate. That's kind of the Aussie view of God. When I get up to heaven, he'll put a twoies in my hand. Mate, no worries. She'll be right, mate. Don't worry about it. Yeah, 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 whatever. You did sin. I don't really care about them anyway. It doesn't matter to me. Who cares? That's not God. God will not leave sin unpunished. Anyone who rejects God's king will experience God's anger. It was very visible back with the time of the kings. And we don't see it right now. But the king of David, great David's greatest son, King Jesus, he will do this too. He will carry out the justice and it will happen in the future. And that is why right now is a very important time in the world history because now is the time when we've still got time to come to King Jesus and say, will you forgive me? Because I'm sorry I have sinned. I'm sorry I've done things I'm ashamed of. I'm sorry I've lived my own life for me. And I'm really, 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 really sorry. Will you have mercy on me? And Jesus will say, I forgive you. I show you mercy. I show you grace. I'm still going to deal with that sin. I'm still going to punish that. But actually, I'm going to take that punishment upon myself. See, when we are horrified by the blood and the, and, the, and the justice being executed and the execution of those who have rebelled against God, we forget that sin hurts God and it is a rebellion against God. But we must never forget his ultimate solution, and that is for him to take upon himself in the Lord Jesus the punishment we deserved. If you're not yet friends with Jesus, don't wait any longer. How much longer are you going to be here? You don't know. Anything could happen. You could have a car accident on the way home. Who knows? Have you got time? Do you know that? Don't wait. Don't delay. Sort it out before you leave the building. Because God is a God of justice. He's not like a don't worry about it. She'll be right, mate. He will judge. And if you're not friends with him, you will be executed by him in hell. But there's time to turn back. There's time for his mercy. Don't delay. Well, David dies. And he's buried with his ancestors in the king of the city of David, verse 10. David had reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. Solomon became king and sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. 40 years he was king, and now he's finished, and Solomon begins. And as we're about to look at Solomon, another guy pops up who we saw last week. His name was Adonijah. He was Solomon's very, very attractive brother who thought that he might like to be king if you don't mind. And it didn't turn out so well for him. And he was the guy who said to Solomon, please have mercy on me because I lost this and I don't want you to execute me. And Solomon said, no worries, mate. As long as you keep in line, then you'll be fine. So what happens? Well, one day Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, came to see Bathsheba, 
whose son was Solomon, you know, Haggath and Bathsheba, the wives. And he says, have you come with peaceful intentions, Adonijah? And yes, Adonijah said to Bathsheba, I come in peace. In fact, I have a favour to ask of you. Oh, what is it? As you know, the kingdom was rightfully mine. But, and all Israel wanted me to be the next king, not Solomon. But the tables were turned, and the kingdom went to my brother instead, your son. For that is the way the Lord wanted it. What would the Lord know? Anyway. So now that I, I just have one favour to ask of you, me and my pity, sadness, end of the world, how sad. Please don't turn me down. What is it? She asked. Do you think Adonijah had come to terms with not being king yet? Mm, I don't think so. Is he still bitter and twisted? I don't think so. Um, so he comes to me and he says, you know, basically Adonijah's not happy that Solomon's king. And he goes to the queen mother, Solomon's mum, and says, I'm pretty grumpy. Any chance you could give me a consolation prize? And so he says in verse 17, Speak to King Solomon on my behalf, for I know that he'll do your, anything you request, because you're his mum. Ask him to let me marry Abishag, the girl from Shunem. All right, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. Do you remember Abishag? Uh, she is, well, she was the woman who was the human hot water bottle for David. She was the one who was the winner of the beauty contest for the most beautiful human hot water bottle. And now Adonijah wants to take the woman who his dad was last with. They thought, well, fair enough. She's nice. They'll look good on a magazine cover together, all of that stuff. Is that what it's all about? And Bathsheba probably thinks, oh, well, okay, well, I suppose that's a nice consolation prize. Second place, you don't get to rule, but you get a pretty looking girl. No worries, I'll take it to my son, King Solomon. King Solomon doesn't see it that way. He's a wise guy. Verse 22, he says to his mum, how can you possibly ask me to give Abishag to Adonijah? You might as well ask me to give him the kingdom. You know that he is my older brother and that he is Abathar the priest and Joab son of Zeruah on his side. Solomon was wise. He saw what was coming and he knew that by his older brother taking his father's concubine, he's just trying to take King Solomon's power away. Adonijah wanted to undermine Solomon. Now, if you don't think this is a thing, turn back to 2 Samuel 16 in your own time and you'll see that Absalom went and publicly slept with all of King David's concubines. Who does that? Well, it's somebody who wants to undermine the king. And that is exactly what Adonijah is now trying to do with Solomon. And Solomon's no idiot. He's like, oh, I see that coming. And pick it like a nose, right there. I know what he's trying to do. Adonijah did not accept God's plan. He rejected God's king. He wanted to be God's king himself. And that is after he has tasted mercy from the Messiah. 
His brother Solomon should have sorted things out ages ago. Oh, just knock him off. He's a problem. But no, he said, I'll give you mercy if you submit to God's king. To which Adonijah said, yeah, right. Forget that. He's tasted the mercy of the Messiah. He's rejected the mercy of the Messiah. And now here comes this. Verse 23. Then King Solomon made a vow before the Lord. This is pretty serious. May God strike me and even kill me if Adonijah has not sealed his fate with this request. The Lord has confirmed me and placed me on the throne of my father David. He has established my dynasty as he promised. So as surely as the Lord lives, Adonijah will die this very day. And so King Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to execute him and Adonijah his stepbrother, was put to death. Solomon executed Adonijah. That's not normally what we see happen in Canberra, in the Liberal Party or the Labor Party. It, I mean, it would certainly tidy things up if one faction could just knock off all the other faction with purity, we'll be fine. doesn't normally happen that way. Although strange poisonings in the Soviet, uh, I don't know, things that, you know, Russia, I don't know, whatever. But, but this is what happened back then. And you sort of think, what's happening? Is Solomon just being that really nervous guy who's terrified, always looking over his back shoulder? Mm. Well, what we do know, whether that's true or not, is that he recognises that he's been put there as God's king. You notice the number of times God put me here, he set me here, he's given me the job, and now Adonijah doesn't want to obey God. He doesn't want to submit to God's man. And so he is going to carry out the judgment of God. And he's going to do exactly what will happen to anyone who ignores God's king. Adonijah didn't want Solomon to be king, and most of the world don't want Jesus to be king. And what came to Adonijah is what's coming to those who reject Jesus. But before there's more punishment, there's more mercy, as we see before Abiathar, verse 26, 27. The king said to Abiathar the priest, he's one of the guys who's conspiring, you know, go back to your home in Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I won't kill you now because you carry the ark of the sovereign Lord for David, my father, and you shared all his hardships. So Solomon deposed Abiathar from his position as priest of the Lord, thereby fulfilling the prophecy the Lord had given at Shiloh concerning the descendants of Eli. Uh, Basically, Solomon does what was promised right at the start of 1 Samuel chapter 2, that Eli's descendants will eventually not be priests forever. And that's happened here. Abiathar loses his role as a priest, but his life is spared. Solomon is tidying things up as he begins to lead. But now it's time to deal with Joab, verse 28. Joab had not joined Absalom's earlier rebellion, but he had joined Adonijah's rebellion. So when Joab heard about Adonijah's death, he's thinking, oh, I'm next. He ran to the sacred tent of the Lord and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. And anyway, well, the king said, kill him there beside the altar and bury him. This will remove the guilt of Joab's senseless murders from me and from my father's family. The Lord will repay him for the murders of two men who were more righteous and better than he. For my father knew nothing about the deaths of Abner, son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. May their blood be on Joab and his descendants forever, and may the Lord grant peace forever to David, his descendants, his dynasty, and his throne." 
What's happening to Joab is he's getting what he deserved. It's not like he just was a grumpy guy that, that the king didn't like. Joab receives justice for his senseless murders. Finally, justice is meted out. It's weird, isn't it, when you see stories about how a 75-year-old man is suddenly found to be the murderer of a crime that he committed when he was 35. And you think, oh, he's a poor old man now. He's nice. He's a nice old man. You know? And you think, hang on a second. He did a horrible thing. He murdered that person in cold blood and now he's been found and he's guilty and he needs to be punished. And you think, oh, is that fair? Yes, of course it's fair. Time catches up. Justice catches up for Joab and he receives that justice. Next it's Shimei. He's been told by Solomon, build a house here in Jerusalem and live there, but don't step outside the city to go anywhere else. On the day you as so much as cross the Kidron Valley, you'll surely die and your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei replied, your sentence is fair. I'll do whatever the Lord, my king, commands. And so Shimei lived in Jerusalem for a long time. Solomon's actually showing him a fair bit of mercy, saying, I'm not going to knock you out now. I'm just saying this boundary. I'm going to give you a boundary. This is what it means to submit to the king and all will go well for you. And it was sort of for a while. But three years later, verse 39, two of Shimei's slaves ran away to King Ashesh, son of Machar of Gath. And when Shimei learned where they were, he saddled his donkey and went to Gath, outside Jerusalem, to search for them. And when he found them, he brought them back to Jerusalem. He busted through the boundary. He rejected the word of the Lord, of the king. The king had shown him mercy, but now that's been rejected. Solomon heard, verse 41, that Shimei had left Jerusalem and had gone to Gath and returned. So the king sent for Shimei and demanded, Didn't I make you swear by the Lord and warn you not to go anywhere else or you'd surely die? And you replied, The sentence is fair, I'll do as you say. Then why haven't you kept your oath to the Lord and obeyed my command? Busted. Shimei broke, he broke the boundaries that he, he swore to keep. He made an oath to obey the king, but now he broke it, and the mercy of the king was no more. Verse 44, the king also said to Shimei, You certainly remember all the wicked things you did to my father David. May the Lord now bring that evil on your own head. But may I, King Solomon, receive the Lord's blessing, and may one of David's descendants always sit on this throne in the presence of the Lord. And then at the king's command, Benai, son of Jehoiada, took Shimei out and killed him. He's getting what he deserved. His justice is catching up for him. And our last half of the last sentence, we read the kingdom is now firmly in Solomon's grip. Justice has been executed. And the king is just. And he's followed out the commands of the Lord as he's listened to the word of the king. And now Solomon has clear air to lead God's people. I tell you what, I mean, Solomon was just a youth at this time, more than likely. And his dad said, go and clean up the mess. Go and take out the trash. And so he executes justice because that's what God's king does. So when you wrote down in your little piece of paper there about what you think makes a great king, was it anything to do with justice? When you thought about what makes a good leader, was it executes justice? 
Well, it's at the heart of what it means to be God's king. It's what it is at the heart of what it means for God's king to rule. Now, David was pretty good except for all the bad, bad things. And Solomon was really, really good except for all the really, really bad things. And, well, it goes down the track till you get to Jesus and then it stops. He's the ultimate king. He's the guy that never did bad, that always did good, that actually ticked every single box and did perfectly keep all the commandments and the laws and the decrees. He was also strong and courageous. He didn't shy away from going to the cross, even though he knew he was going to cop it for us. That is what makes him such a good king. And so if you are wondering how it is that you can stand before King Jesus when he comes to judge, let me say to you that he is the best king. He is a truly good king. Because at the cross, not only is there justice, there's also mercy. And so if you want to have certainty when Jesus judges you, if you want to have certain mercy for eternity, now is the time to come to him and say, I, have, I, I ask for mercy. I'm sorry I've rejected you, Jesus. And now I come to you and, and want you to be my king, my loving ruler. If you've never done that, you just need to say that. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's, it's a big call, but it's a simple thing to say. If you haven't done it, make sure you do it. Because the justice of God is at the heart of God. And I've got to say that if one of my family members had been murdered and it took 40 years to catch up with a guy who's 75 and looks like a nice old grandpa, deep down in my heart I'd be wanting justice still. And so would you. Justice is a value that we have. And isn't it good that our king has it as his core value. But isn't it great that mercy is there as well? Let me pray. We are so thankful, Jesus, that you rule with justice and that you show us mercy. And we come to you today... We recognise that we have sinned and that we have rejected your rule for our lives. We are sorry for that and we repent of our sins and we turn to you. We thank you for dying on the cross for us. And we ask that as forgiven people we might follow you all our days. Thank you for the certainty that we have in eternity because of what you, Jesus, have done for us. And we pray that we would rejoice in this and know your love all our days. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jembrew Anglican Church. For more information, head to jembrewanglican.com.